to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, guys, uh, this is a continuation of the farm's storied Wackle series, but with a twist. We're going to look at the evolution of the old Wackle Network from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith and I and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, we saw it as a largely historical undertaking. But as the show Keith and I did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. And at the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wacko-unlike bodies uh, and that they held during the Cold War. Whereas in an earlier era, Wacko served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange things for the motley crew of international drugs and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals and next-generation black terrorists and the inevitable religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes. It was an incredible milieu, both sides of which largely still exist today. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels now. And at the center of all this was the most enigmatic of private military companies. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more, as we shall see over the course of this series. Indeed, it may even be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I truly wish I wasn't exaggerating with these claims. Up to this point, we explored the circumstances that spawned Far West Limited and a little bit of the backdrop of a most peculiar military unit in the Soviet-era GRU, that's a military intelligence program, overseen by the mysterious Colonel Yuri Gosev, and potentially supported by the even more mysterious General Dmitry Polyakov, alias Top Hat, one of the most infamous U.S. double agents to ever uh, uh, become a turncoat within Russia's security services. 
So with this outing, uh, which actually was recorded at the same time as the first show, we're now going to give you guys a crash course proper in the unholy trinity that spawned Far West Limited. Joining me again for this outing is my research partner throughout this series, the great Senate of the UK. And uh, after this uh, little break here, we are just going to jump right in with these bios because these guys have some pretty incredible stuff to unpack to put it mildly and uh as with all wacko related content this show is dedicated to ed kaufman alias don diligent an og wacko contributor who is dearest dearly missed don i hope i'm doing you justice with this and that you are watching over this series on that note let's start the show <laughs> First of Far West, uh, the Unholy Trinity, who helped set it up. That would be uh, good old Vladimir Fillion. I know he's uh, got a lot of Carlful history. So you want to get into that? Uh, he's one of these guys, I should point out. I had erroneously, erroneously described him as a Russian uh, when I first talked about Far West and the uh, Patreon episode on Wagner. Uh, but he's actually Ukrainian, which is really significant. So what else about this character's murky history? Can you uh, shed some light on Senate? Well, he's our favorite type of Ukrainian. Uh, so Vladimir Ilyich Filin, which is a cover name, is a Ukrainian nationalist who has mixed uh, Ukrainian Jewish and Moldovan heritage. Um, his grandfather made a party career in the 50s and 60s on the, it says forced here, I will just say Ukrainization and the promotion of the Ukrainian language in Eastern Ukraine um and his wife's grandfather was the commander of a bandera gang in the upa um we we want to come back to that because the name was in one of the articles but i i missed that one uh like like i can't find that one again and this is mentioned quite in quite a lot of places uh Philin is a known proponent of the intermarian which is a union of Central and Eastern European states and has been involved in criminal activity under the instruction of special services. He holds Brazilian, British, Serbian and Ukrainian citizenship and has two Ukrainian passports. Filin uh, has played a key role in various coups and revolutions, including the operation to overthrow uh, Ceausescu 
in Romania in 1989 and the and the Orange Revolution in Kiev in 2004. Sorry, guys, this is uh, written from a very pro-Russian perspective. So it was written Orange Coup. I've decided to read that as Orange Revolution to, uh, <laughs> to be reasonably politically correct. But sometimes these things are catching me out. Uh, um, he also fought in the U U Yugoslav wars supposedly on the side of Serbia or I mean who really knows um, okay uh, as we mentioned he was injured in a car crash um, in Serbia I think the story was he was in a car with two Serbian agents um, I think it was hit or it crashed, the car flipped, his face was severely injured, and he went underwent extensive plastic surgery. So the pictures we saw of him were haunting, right? I th I think. Um, he, I, the, the closest I can describe to it is he looks like a young Mr. Burns uh, from The Simpsons. I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say about this. Yeah, no, that definitely seems pretty accurate. I mean, <clears throat> quite fitting for the international uh, man of mystery that he certainly is. And again, his flair for the different names, uh, the fact that he's maybe had multiple plastic surgeries over the course of his life. Uh, I mean, yeah, you just, this is like a guy I mean, who's almost straight out of like a James Bond novel, really. I mean, it's that kind of spy villain, essentially. I mean, you almost uh, yeah. This could be real, almost. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just to draw on that, that I, I think with the plastic surgery, there are two connections. Oh, we're, we're jumping a bit ahead here that we should get on. Villain uh, has a um, Latin American connection, which we'll get into, uh, and we know there are some great plastic surgeons out there who uh, I'm sure he's in those kind of circles, um, and we. Um, Oh, what was it? Okay, yeah. Oh, Fitzroy McLean, right? Uh, so we've mentioned James Bond. Um, Fitzroy McLean is a kind of um, he's a diplomat. He he's a British spy. Uh, there's a really famous picture of him standing in Moscow, 1938. Um, he is allegedly uh, the person that kind of James Bond is is based on. Um, he's the inspiration for James Bond. Uh, he is connected into this story a lot. There is a we'll we'll get into it. There is a possibility he could have met Villain. I don't think Villain's the inspiration for something, but I think it's uh, quite nice how there's uh, another little uh, connection uh, <laughs> there. Yeah, it is certainly quite curious. And, you know, again, now with Philan's uh, uh, seeming family connections to the OUNB in mind, uh, again, I would just want to briefly go back to Dmitry uh, Polyakov uh, and uh, his uh, other uh, backer in the uh, GRU, Sergi um, Itzokov. So, you know, again, I don't know what Sergi's uh, ethnicity was, but Polyakov was also Ukrainian. And these are the guys that are back in Gustav, who brings in Philan, uh, who's Ukrainian, and some of these other nationalities from Central Asia. So this, you know, in terms of the concept of the Second Barbarossa, again, it's interesting to look at this from that point of view. 
effectively you could see this um ukrainian slash central asian network as a kind of fifth column uh, that we were cultivating within the Russian security services that was used as a backdoor to undermine them. Because again, Polyakov was probably the, I mean, he was definitely very close to being the highest ranking defector that, you know, we acquired in Soviet intelligence during the Second World War. I mean, he was a huge, huge catch for us. So, and then later, you know, you see these guys turning up in all of these schemes to destabilize Russia, their kind of successors, as we'll get into here. It really raises the possibility that, um, yeah, there had been a long-term plan at play here to cultivate uh, some of these ethnic groups within the Russian security services to destabilize the Soviet Union. And then later, um, you know, the next generation of these guys were used in these uh, rackets with these private military companies to try to finish the job, uh, which again kind of goes back to why the British are maybe so adamant about this. I mean, they've you know, again, possibly only invested maybe 70 or 80 years in, you know, putting this network together for this purpose. So, you know, who knows? Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, do you want to go in now to good old uh, Anton Surikov here? Uh, this was the dude I showed. Oh, we've uh, we've got more filling. Oh, okay, well, 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 I'm not going to say no to more filling. Right. Let's go with it. All right. Okay. So where were we? Car crash, Serbia, plastic surgery. Now let's go into his businesses. Right. So um, obviously, because all of these guys are criminals, so they're all, you know, trying to do stuff with their money. Um, his legal businesses included and these business lists are really interesting. I mean, they're really something. Um, OK, stock speculation, naturally, uh, banana plantations in Colombia, <laughs> production and export of Brazilian beef to the European Union scientific and technical intelligence um in the interests of the brazilian aircraft um company embraer um who i'll note um began producing i think like you know pa pa passenger jets um in the 1990s um they they weren't before um he was also involved in a solution, uh, quote marks, of gas issues in the east of Bolivia in the interests of the Brazilian corporation Petrobras. Um, so, I mean, these guys are finding work uh, every, everywhere they can. Uh, also, um, something uh, close to what we've touched upon, apparently had informal control over se several enterprises of the Serbian military industrial complex, as well as uh, remnants of the Arkan and uh, Legia gangs, uh, Le Legia uh, gangs, who were um, the, the uh, kind of big, you know, super scary military units from Serbia. So Ar Arkan was the, you know, the warlord with the tiger. Um, I think some of these guys were up for you know international court of justice crimes against humanity all of that uh kind of stuff um Philin's main business is the production of ethanol in brazil from sugarcane in the states of 
Mato Grosso and and that's a that's a oh really yeah interesting one because if I remember correctly he had actually like what partnered or had some involvement in George Sorzos with this and I I think Sor Soros and I think he really got into the ethanol business around 08 or 09 which is when you started I, I mean I don't know how it is in the rest of the world but at least in the states that was when I think that they really started to massively oh. putting ethanol in gasoline I'm just about to mention that that yes um he <laughs> apparently Philin's firms right okay so the states right in Brazil okay Matt they're listed as Mato Grosso do Sul and uh Minas Gerais. Uh I I don't know if that's that's how you pronounce them, right? Uh several factories. Um his firms have been partnered with George Soros, who yes, is invested uh in ethanol for speculation. Um and also a major figure in a lot of these color revolutions. Keep that in mind as well, folks. Yeah, <laughs> you're jumping. <laughs> um yeah, and they apparently both of them took part in a ethanol summit in sao paulo so i've been trying to find that summit so we're looking something around 2007 2008 um any info um but but they they've been spotted as speaking together there um yes and they've cropped they i think they're crossing path and working on this i mean one thing i've looked out is i mean every you know just like when you're just you know googling and clicking through links for this just to kind of see what's out there um there's always um there's always what what is it open society foundation what what is soros's foundation called oh you're right open society foundation yeah open there's always some open society exactly where you would expect it to to be um so the opposition that you think is aligned with the united states is it, 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 it you know they're they're getting they've got an award had not got written about them or that cut or that kind of thing as i'm sure many are aware the cia has had a long-standing relationship with the ukrainian nationalist movement in 1949 the cia brought mikola lebed to the united states uh so if we if you don't know uh just briefly mikola lebed was a key figure in the oun and the upa um he's been accused of let's just put it some serious crimes where we're talking tens of, tens of thousands of deaths personally being there he was a contemporary of stefan bandera um i'm sure moss is going to give a better description when we get to it but um he's a very very important figure in the ukrainian nationalist movement uh and he is i mean they're already on the extreme and the militant end and he is on the extreme and the militant end of those guys so uh that's that's what you need to think of um okay in the 19 and and he went to the united states uh he was a basically a cia officer if you go look him up on wikipedia there'll be no information but there it will be he will be listed as a cia officer um if you do want more information uh wackle episode one i listened to it the of this from this podcast i uh listened to it the other day um and uh they they uh they go into great detail about it 
Um, right. Uh, okay. In the night, so Lebed, I think, died in the midnight, in the mid to late nineties. But um, you know, he finally lived to to see the day of a uh, free, well, supposedly Ukraine. So he met with Filin in uh, in Kiev in the nineties. <laughs> Um, it's widely believed, as we've kind of established now, <laughs> that Filin and Alexei Likvintsev, a longtime colleague um, who is also a student of Gusev, um, are part of the OUN-UPA, um, having a presence in Ukraine, Ukraine and the West. Um, the organization, with its ideological and per ideological and personnel connections to the bandera holds significant sway over the sbu and the gore and the greeting of the upa is even used within certain divisions of the ukrainian special services and military units this was written in this text i think was written in about 2008 so it was it, this is all everything here is uh pre um Euromaidan. So I think that's that's just always something to keep in mind. Okay. Um yeah, and that greeting, okay. Yeah, Philin and Vincev are said to be avid supporters of uh of the of the salute, the special the special salute. Um Filin wields influence and power in the power structures in Kiev, uh, which we will get into in a lot of detail. He is a definitely a Ukrainian deep state figure, um, explains a lot of goings on, um, why things happened. Uh, it's a totally new dynamic from which to look through uh, Ukrainian politics. I mean, all of this is provide i mean i thought i was well read and all of that stuff before i came through this uh went through this um so he does wield influence and we'll get into that he also has established connections um with gore which is the ukrainian military intelligence um uh, which is a lot more secretive um, than the SBU, uh, through closed channels to the USA, England, Germany, the Vatican, Poland, Belarus, the Baltic states, and Transcaucasia. Well, okay, so we all know what's what's going on in these places. Um, Filin and Likvintsev did business with the following foreign private military companies. Um, as mentioned before, Meteoric Tactical Solutions in Angola, um, Kellogg, Brown and Root, KBR Halliburton in Colombia, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Georgia and Iraq, uh, Diligence Iraq LLC um, in, in Iraq. Um, the cooperation with these companies began in the end of 1994 in Angola on the initiative of Victor Bout who was involved in the shipments of, yes, of Soviet-made arms to the anti-government group UNITA in exchange for raw diamonds. Um, Victor Bout as well, um, I'll mention from this, I mean, Victor Bout is also a guy that speaks um, multiple languages, uh, Tajik, Persian, 
uh, I think maybe like even stuff like Zulu and Zosa uh, from his time there. Um, He's also partly Ukrainian as well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of interesting again why Putin wanted him back. But it, well, it was well, see, no, but... 2008 is a really significant date to all this, and that was like when he was arrested too in the U.S. That was probably another factor in all of this too. So, but yeah, yeah, some of you guys I, look forward to. I do hope we uncover how he was, uh, you know, the 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 victim out story. Um, I, I don't know, because I, I wonder if maybe, maybe, you know, because, uh, and, and the book, uh, goes into this, uh, in great detail, um, that, you know, th there are ideological actors and there are, you know, actors, right? So maybe Victor is just a, uh, a guy who's, you know, out to make a bit of change, uh, and doesn't want to get wrapped up in anything too crazy. And uh, maybe that's uh, where it's all gone wrong for him. It certainly begs the question. Uh, but yeah, so many fascinating figures turn up in this, no doubt. Well, I, 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 hard um, to beat Dylan, though. But yeah, you got more on him? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just want to mention again, I saw an interview with um, Victor Bout with a a well-known uh, military analyst who I'm sure you might all know. Um, and it, it was it was quite funny. It was quite surreal because he was obviously lying through loads of it, given, <laughs> given what we know. Uh, it was bizarre that he'd even done it. Um, he um, reminds me a lot of Mario from the game. Uh, he's like a Russian Mario. Uh, and that those are the last things I want to say about Victor Bout. <laughs> And then the fitting irony, he was traded for the woman who was arrested for hash oil, too. It's just... Uh, <laughs> all right, so our man Philan, what else you got, man? Um. Okay. Um, so what we're we, cooperating with PMCs. Okay. Um, in October 1998, Filin and Likvintsev's wife, uh, Ludmila Roskina, uh, and Antov's, Anton Surikov, who we'll get to later, but uh, the note here is that he works for the Russian government at the time. In October of 1998, all of these guys set up Far West. Um, so they established the company in uh Lusanne, uh which um and it was listed as doing security consulting for business ventures in countries with unstable regimes uh which i guess makes you laugh um de, de facto this was um yep a private military company um Billin is also friends with a character we've mentioned before. Um, he, uh, Alfonso Devodovich Okoa, uh, who was born in Colombia and of Russian descent, though he, he only has one Russian ancestor, I've heard, and has somehow managed to keep the name, but uh, everyone else is Spanish. Um, he was a Cuban army officer in the 70s and 80s. He was involved in the Cuban Ministry of Defense and worked under the command of Antonio de la Guardia, 
who was in charge of a highly secretive financial and trade operations department within the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Um, I think this was the Cuban equivalent of um, what what we've spoken about um, of all the other guys doing. So um, sanctions busting, drugs, uh, arms trafficking, uh, supporting militants, this kind of stuff. Um, Dvorovic was trained in Cuba, the USSR and East Germany and had experience in intelligence operations. He was connected to various drug trafficking groups, including FARC, uh, the Medellin cartel, uh, Nicaragua, and the United States. Um, well, uh, groups in there. Um, following the collapse of the USSR, Dvorovich became an independent agent, working with several special services uh, uh, of various nations, including Gru and the Americans. He had business dealings with Adnan Khashoggi in Chechnya and was a known money launderer for drug operations. He owned offshore banks and was part of the Colombian-Ukrainian group in Far West, playing the role of an intermediary in the export of cocaine uh, to Russia, via the port of St. Petersburg. He was considered to be a dangerous individual, armed and always on guard. Uh, also noted in this, he's always with various young secretaries. Um, here, Here is a quote from an Anatoly, Anatoly Baranov, who is a name you should remember. He is the editor of the Communist Party uh, of the Russian Federation newspaper and the editor of a website called forum.msk, though I'm sure in Russia, that's that's an English translation of the word, so I'm sure Russians will know, um, which was also founded by an Open Society grant. Um, so Anatoly Baranov, communist supposedly left-wing uh, news newspaper editor. Uh, here is the quote. Vladimir Filin lives in his house in the mountains near the capital of Colombia, uh, Bogota. Um, next door next door to Alfonso de Vodovich. His home, acquired at the very end of the 80s, looks quite exotic. It's somewhat reminiscent of a knight's castle. <laughs> or a fortress in the highlands of scotland there is even a run a runway for small sports aircraft in the adjacent territory um anatoly baranov wrote a series of long articles um about about all the far west characters we suspect they were we're gonna get into it he is involved we suspect we expect that will suspect that a lot of this stuff is kind of building cover or cover work, um, you know, to present them. So a lot of times these guys are presenting as um, political analysts or, you know, uh, running some organization or group and stuff like that. So um, I think there's, there's a lot of media dealings. Uh, okay. And here is the final bit on just the final statement on Philin, because we're going to have to do a whole episode into, I mean, we've, we've even cut some really crazy stuff. 
uh, from this just just to, just to narrow this down um villain is quite the character a real life born villain a drug baron known around the world with the nick with the nickname el bujo uh which means the owl um because apparently he looks like one uh yet he's deeply involved in intelligence uh and his whereabouts and activities always seem to precede trouble um and he's also the head of a super secret ukrainian military intelligence department but we're going to leave that for another time yeah one other point too that um we might have to eventually get more in depth too but it's interesting to note that I think it was like around 98 or 99 that the U.S. launched um, Plan Columbia, which was the attempt uh, to eradicate uh, the uh, Colombian uh, far left group FARC, F-A-R-C, uh, who were allegedly the ones behind much of the cocaine trafficking, which was nonsense. It was uh, really, uh, you know, the Ocho family who had operated through like uh, the Medellin cartel initially, and then later um, the Cali cartel and some of the successors to that. But FARC has always been the group that's been blamed for it, though, because they were a Marxist group, at least way back in the day. But anyway, um, it's a fascinating dynamic because Dying Corps, uh, which is, again, one of the major uh, private military companies from the United States, obviously, was brought in uh, to assist the Colombian military in carrying out Plan Colombia, which largely targeted uh, FARC. And again, it's likely that Philan, in turn, was working with FARC possibly around the same time frame. So... Uh, at least at this point, and, um, you know, I think Putin was very much a part of this crowd back in this era because he was the mayor of St. Petersburg uh, throughout the early 90s. And I mean, he had his own people that were involved in the cocaine trade there. Um, and again, you know, this is coming from Putin's people, major source of which is the next fellow we're about to talk about, which I'll get to in a second. But yeah, I think there's definitely very strong uh evidence that putin probably was tied in with this milieu in the 90s and some of the drug trafficking and what have you so again it's just you know kind of interesting you always maybe see a bit of a a precursor to later developments like in ukraine with wagner squaring off against uh the us or western pmc uh mozart you know so who knows maybe there was a bit of that with don core in far west in colombia uh, in the late 90s so Yet again, another uh, kind of fascinating dynamic to all of this. За волю і правду боролись і ми. Слава нашому бандері і всім боякам, хто за війну країну голову поклав. Хай живе Степан Бандера! 
наших пісням. Та не згасне його слава і в наших сіріцях. Тож, братня, шануємо свободу свою, щоб у вас добута нерівнім бою. Згадаймо героїв, в країну любим, і славу Бандери навік збережим. Слава нашому Бандері і всім боякам, хто загинув Україну, Слава нашому Бандері і всім боякам, хто завів Україну, голову поклав. Хай живе Степан Бандера у наших піснях, та не згасне його слава. But anyway, that brings us to the next uh, founder of Far West up for consideration, the enigmatic political operative Anton Surikov. And I will point out once again, Surikov was a major force for the book that I've used quite a bit uh, to describe some of the intrigues in Russia and the 90 Putin's people. So, and as um, Senate has pointed out, you know, uh, the text that we're using, the third Barbarossa comes with very much a pro-Russian and specific a Russian nationalist perspective to it. So, you know, this is kind of a dynamic that you guys are literally seeing playing out in this podcast where you're seeing a narrative on the one hand that is being presented by a guy like Sarikov and his group. Uh, that is essentially trying to uphold the Western perspective on what went on in this region in the 90s and uh, into the knots. And conversely, the third Barbarossa text, which we're also using extensively in this, is trying to uphold the narrative from the Russian perspective of what was going on. So uh, again, getting back to how important psychological warfare is to all this, you're basically seeing it playing out in a sense and how some of these uh, events are depicted that we're describing from these different sources but anyways and yeah. please tell us about Surikov. um yeah that being said third barbarossa and some of the other uh bits they they uh they do go into putin's involvement and his um uh thing. i mean just uh, kind of from what you were saying there uh in some of the articles i've read um it it St. Petersburg is one of the major, major entry points for cocaine. Um, so there are tussles um, over who controls who controls the port. Exactly. And um, as for the FARC connection, um, I, I think it's almost certain that Philin uh, was moving it. Again, there's so much information here, but I do remember reading 
that um, I think at one point he was directly sent whilst he was still under the command of Guru to Colombia um, to to get this done. Yeah, it's it's just such a fascinating dynamic. I mean, I had alluded to this a little bit in the intro, but there does seem like there was kind of a civil war almost that broke out in Russia in the mid 90s when these, you know, Western Alliance Ogolarks kind of centered around uh, Boris Berzovsky, uh, you know, were on the verge of taking over over half of the Russian economy and uh, and Putin's people, I mean, they tried to spin it like it was the KGB squaring off against the Ogolarks, but it was actually much more complex than that. I mean, the the Ogolarks had their own. Uh, well, really, it seems like the Ogolarks had more of the GRU people. And then conversely, uh, the KGB figures, on the other hand, also had their own Ogolarks that were backing them. So, I mean, it was sort of an internal power struggle over uh basically how integrated the russian economy was going to become with the west i.e how open it was going to be to exploitation from western financial interests and uh putin was not the first choice uh at least as sir if surikov and some of the other sources for putin's people were to be believed by the kgb faction to take over uh, Russia in the late 90s uh, but he ended up getting the job because he was more acceptable to Yeltsin's family because he was seen as being a bit more of a centralist like he wasn't going to totally cut off uh, western financial interests uh, just you know maybe crack down on some of the more excessive uh, moves that the uh, the western line Ogolarks had done so, yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like that, you know, I could see in this context how he would have originally maybe been a part of this group. But it seems like going into the knots gradually, he drifted further and further away. And it might have even been a case as far back in the 90s, because, again, you know, Far West was set up right around the same time that a lot of these intrigues were playing out between the sort of Western Align Ogolarchy faction and uh, the GRU assets backing them on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the uh, Russian Align Ogolarchy and the KGB factions backing them. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of uh, Game of Thrones type stuff playing out with all of this in the background, certainly. But uh, you want to get into uh, Surikov here, sir? Yeah, okay. Um, I'll say that Surikov right now is like one of the harder ones to write about, uh, or like get in, get any information on because it, as we'll get into, his is kind of like a, a much more background role, um, on having, you know, impact. So I'm going to give you some stories here that kind of, I think, get you in the zone of, uh, you know, who, who Surikov is in this story, what he is representing. Um, but uh, that, again, almost for everything we tell you in this, we could do like another four hour like podcast. So, <laughs> so we'll get through it. Um, okay. Anton Surikov is a, or presents himself as a Russian political scientist and critic of the Yeltsin and Putin. Putin governments. Um, he is responsible for information and political projects and is actively publishing in the press. Um, as we've seen, he is an expert 
on organized crime in Russia and has written a book on the topic and supplied some of our quotes from earlier. Um, some of his publications resemble ciphered directives to elements in the Russian special services disloyal to President Vladimir Putin. Oh, oh wait. Other, his other articles contain political messages intended for abroad. Hopefully we'll get into that story. Uh, Surikov is deeply involved in the elite of the scientific and technical branch of the military industrial complex, as well as Russian and Turkish special services. He envisions a secular great Turan on the ruins of southern Russia with the help of Turkish general staff. Um, Turanism is quite is quite interesting because I guess you've got pan-Turkism and then almost like super pan-Turkism is like Turanism where they're counting Native Americans, Japanese, Hungarians, uh, Finnish, uh, all of those guys are Turkish. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that some of that's in there. You've also got the, uh, you know, Turkish sun language uh, conspiracy or uh, maybe it's true um where supposedly all languages are derived from turkish um you can go read some of the stuff up um surikov has established relations with pan-turkish circles in the military and intelligence in turkey um and he has links to the gray wolves um, he is also a leader of the Left Party of Social Justice, a front organization for Russian secret services and army veterans. Surikov comes from an Adiki family. I don't know how to say that. It's spelled A-D-Y-G-H-E. It basically means Circassian in the Circassian language. So he comes from a Circassian family with a long history of fighting against Russian domination in the Caucasus. His ancestors fought alongside the Turks and the British in the first half of the 19th century. Um, Sir William Urquhart was a British officer and diplomat who was stationed in the Caucasus region um, of southern Russia in the 19th, 19th century. Um, and dreams of independence from Circassians are often associated with Urquhart. Um, he is known for his role in supporting local resistance to Russian rule, including the Circassian War of the 1860s. So Britain's been there for uh, a long time fighting this war. Uh, Urquhart believed the Russian Empire posed a threat to British interests in the region and he sought to undermine Russian influence by supporting local nationalist movements. He, he advocated for a unified resistance against Russia, which he saw as necessary to preserving the independence of the Caucasus. Um, Urquhart's work in the region, including his support for the design of the Circassian flag, which uh, you can go find online. I think it's green and the, there are three arrows and a bow, um, has made him a figure of admiration for some nationalists in the Caucasus who see him as a champion of their cause. 
uh, Urquhart's legacy lives on, as we will soon find out. Successive British diplomats have carried on his his torch. Um, here's another interesting little story about Surikov. Um, on December the 30th, 2004, a Turkish private TV channel showed a report about about a meeting of members of the Circassian diaspora in Istanbul, including senior officers and generals of the Turkish army. Um, the Turkish Circassians who were all there were interested in the liberation of their homeland from the Russian invaders. Um, in attendance was an emir going by the name of Amir Hadji Mansour. Now, this emir was actually Surikov, and he said in a wild mixture of bad Adiki and Circassian and bad Turkish that this would happen in the next few years. So the homeland of the Circassians will be liberated in, in years, he says. Uh, and that th this would occur before Turkey was admitted to the European Union which hasn't happened. Um, he argued that it would now be premature to attack, uh, to attack Russia because the um, Geors will arrange genocide on us. Um, I, I don't know what Geors means. Uh, it's spelled G-I-A-O-U-R-S. Um, it's probably been translated from Turkish into russian and then into english uh so who knows um carrying on however soon the kremlin towers will fall and the fascist regime will supposedly be overthrown um then according to him the kremlin will have no time for the circassians and we must not miss this historic ch chance um further the emir outlined a plan to capture the territory along the entire left bank of the Kuban, the entire coast of the Black Sea from uh, Su, uh, it's spelled P-S-O-U, to uh, the entire coast of the Black Sea from Su to Taman, uh, as well as Kabada, Mozdok and Piatigorsk. According to him, 50,000 Circassian Mujahideen are ready to do this. Um, and when the order comes, our brothers from Turkey, Syria and Jordan will, will have to send to help us. And another 50,000 Mujahideen compatriots uh, must urgently be taught the Russian language since the language of the hated enemy must be known. According to him, if Moscow does not intervene, we will click. We will we will quickly clear our land of carnival Cossacks, so that not a single descendant of the royal execution executioners defile it. Um, that was a great line I thought from him. Um, it is interesting that this was said quite openly on TV and shown in Istanbul and. Uh, Adria Adrianopol, um, also listed as uh, Edirne. Um, 
at the same time, about 100 active Turkish soldiers in uniform greeted Surakov and yelled, uh, Allahu Akbar. Um, I, I didn't do that justice there, did I? Um, Surikov's uh, Circassian relatives held high positions in the army, police and special services of Turkey by the beginning of the 1990s. Okay, this is a really important bit. Uh, the rapid career growth um, of his relatives, uh, remember Surikov is Russian, right? And in Russian group. Um, and these are his relatives in Turkey, in Turkish special services. Um, their rapid career growth began in the 1980s under the military junta of General Kenan Evren, who belonged to the post-fascist wing of Turkey's power elite. Evren was the commander of the STK, an anti-guerrilla force that was part of, what do you know it? The clandestine NATO Gladio network, controlled by the CIA. Uh, Fitz McLean of MI6 from Britain, we mentioned him earlier. Um, he's really famous for uh, his work in the Caucasus and Russia. Uh, as I said, there's a really famous picture of him standing by the Kremlin uh, with one of those Russian hats in 1938. So uh, Fitz McLean. Um, oh, he was also uh, su supposedly Ian Fleming's inspiration for James Bond. Uh, Fitz McLean, MI6, helped organize the first cells of the SDK. And Everin was also a master of the strategy of tension that some believe is now being used by Far West in Russia. It's believed Surikov's relatives were patronized and helped in their promotion by President uh, Evren, but also by some people we've mentioned before, the Americans, Fritz, specifically Fritz Erhardt, um, Robert Gates, um, and by the British, a man by the name of Roderick Braithwaite, um, who during the time provided coordination between British and American intelligence services in washington in washington so he was the british uh intelligence like chief in washington but also during the fall of the soviet union i think from 1998 to 1992 he was the ambassador from britain to um to russia he's a big character he's going to feature a lot so ambassador from Russia to Britain, uh, from Britain to Russia during the fall of the Soviet Union, Roderick Braithwaite. Um, he is actually a bit of or presents himself as a bit of a Russia file. So um, I think he maintains a keen interest in Russia. He was also chair of the, um, I think, UK um you know intelligence parliamentary intelligence committee um and he's also been a, an advisor to successive prime ministers from thatcher uh to at least cameron probably still doing it today i'd imagine he's putting in a lot of work this last year um okay so surikov's relatives were helped by some of these people who had relationships uh istanbul 
is traditionally the center of British intelligence operations against the USSR and Russia. Another person who could have been interested in the brilliant career of Surikov's relatives was General Gusev. Uh, Gusev had some principles for selecting and educating his agents, but apart from the demand for personal devotion, one pattern can be said with certainty. His agents of deep elite penetration were not ethnic Russians and had compromising ties in their pedigree um, with uh, anti-Soviet and anti-Russian underground and foreign communities. So he, yeah, I mean, they, they've been picked because they are, uh, it's, it's, it's an uncharitable way to say it, but, you know, possible trait, you know, traitors or from, you know, those parts uh, that you, the those, um, those yeah, communities that you probably, yeah, yeah, those communities you probably wouldn't pick for that that core intelligence work. I presume in a lot of in a lot of countries, it's some a lot of stuff uh, is still like kind of family network based. Um, so yeah, they they've been picked because they they can convince convincingly penetrate. Um, and we'll we'll continue on and get getting into this. Um, so Surikov's intelligence value depended on the success of of his relatives abroad in Turkey, and he has one in England. Um, Surikov uh, Surikov was also in Kurdistan and noticed in Kurdistan, uh, and it's believed that basically Gusev and other people had been kind of helping him you know it's not really known often why a lot of them are sent to these locations specifically to do stuff so it's it's possible that that's a another channel of communication but on the basis of so yeah surikov is kind of deeply connected with turkey um he has relatives in turkey um that is that is his intelligence value um, in 1984, Surikov was also noticed in the Kurdistan theater of operations, and it's believed Gusev shared information about the Kurds with him um, on the basis of people from the ancestral village of Natuk Hay. A secret communication channel was set up between the top leadership of the general staff of the USSR Ministry of Defense and NATO Special Services. It's been alleged that Fritz Ermhart, who we've mentioned here before, is a CIA Russian specialist who um, that he also may have Circassian ancestry. So um, we'll we'll carry on and hopefully get into that. In 1984, Gusev sent Surikov to Afghanistan as a junior officer in his pocket special group N for narcotics, um, where he met his future partners in Far West. Uh, the special group was the first to link the Gru heroin line along the route, um, f- along the route from Afghanistan. So it went from the Grew gate, uh, the Grew base in Fergana Valley, uh, which I think is in Uzbekistan. 
Pakistan. Um, it's a really scenic place, but um, full of troublemakers. Um, uh, so it goes from Afghanistan to Cuba to Central America, then on onwards to the USA. So Gustav sent Surikov to you know establish the line. Um, Surikov could also have had another task, possibly to establish personal contact with Fritz Ermhardt, who we've mentioned a lot. And in 1984, he became the chief national intelligence specialist for the USSR and visited uh, Peshawar, Pakistan. Um, so they're, they're all in the area at this time. Um, you know, could could it be? Uh, Surikov is an experienced agent of influence and uses the psychological technique of suggestion and is skilled in recruitment. He has met with Condoleezza Rice and other luminaries. Um, there are actually panels he's been on uh, with some high up people. He's been to the UK every so often. He's spoken on panels for Circassian independence um alongside some of the people we have mentioned here so like out in public um and that, that kind of stuff yeah he maintained uh contact with fritz amhoff all, all that time he was also director of the national security programs at the nixon center oh and also my notes um fritz passed away in january january the 19th 2022 so um that was a month before um you know the the big war started uh so which i thought was quite interesting um given that that is his life's his life's work uh so you know what a wonderful career uh, <laughs> um okay so surikov retired from group in september 1996 and then he went on to occupy high posts in the Russian federal government. Um, he was at one point the executive director of the Association of Russian Poultry Market Operators. Surikov is considered the main ideologue of Far West and a master of information provocation. Um, so we've got an event here. Uh, the Bronze Knight refers to the night of April 26, 2007, when a mass protest erupted in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, over the Estonian government's decision to relocate a Soviet-era World War II memorial, the Bronze Soldier, from its location in central Tallinn to a military cemetery. The monument, which depicts a Red Army soldier... The monument depicts a Red Army soldier, um, of course. Um, the event is considered to be a defining moment in the modern history of Estonia and is often referred to as a clash between Estonia's pro-Western and pro-Russian factions. I don't know enough about Estonian history to know whether that's true or not, but... Um, I'll let I'll let you guys be the judge. Um, the events of the Bronze Night had far-reaching consequences, both in Estonia and internationally. The incident brought to the surface long-standing tensions between ethnic Estonians and Russians, and prompted a wave of cyber attacks on Estonian government websites, 
believed to have been orchestrated by the Russian government. The Bronze Knight also had a significant impact on Estonia's relationships with relations with Russia, and the Russian government used the incident to accuse Estonia of suppressing the rights of its Russian-speaking minority. Information suggests that Far West played a role in this event. Uh, Surikov apparently took part in an information operation and worked with local journalists in the area to misdirect and inflame tensions. Uh, Filin is alleged to have flown into the event. Um, Filin also... Um, he, he he wrangles groups of thugs as well. I I would point out he he has um uh obviously all his OUN connections. But if you think about the time frame that a lot of this took place in, what's interesting and not noticed is um actually the the um uh I thought what is it is it the UNSO it, but but it was it was the Ukrainian nationalist group that was you know whatever name it was around that time um yeah the UNA USO I think they have showed up in almost all of the any anything that's anti-russian they're they're there um out and about on the ground so I have no doubt that uh, some Ukrainians were um, here and were there in some of those riots, and I'm I'm sure people can confirm for for us. Um, it's believed that the lobbying for the relocation was put forward in Estonia by a man a man by the name of Audrius Putkevichus, um, who is you know, I would say the most famous out of all of these guys. And this was supposedly done on behalf of Fritz Ermhart. Um, Audrius Butkevichus is a Lithuanian businessman and politician who served as deputy minister of the economy 2012 to 2016. Butkevichus has in been involved in various political and business activities in Lithuania and Russia, including in the oil and gas sector. Um, Lithuania declared its independence from the Soviet Union on March the 11th, 1990. I hope that's correct because um, I use like AI to write some of these little bits and sometimes it was giving me the wrong dates. Um, so I, I hope that one's correct. I think I did check it. Um, this was the first time a Soviet Republic had declared independence from the Soviet Union, and it was a significant moment in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Audrius was one of the act, one of the authors of the Act of the Reestablishment of the State of Lithuania which was passed on March the 11th, 1990, and declared Lithuania's independence from the Soviet Union. Uh, Butkevichus also helped draft the first constitution, but Audrius Butkevichus was also a former GRU officer for the Lithuanian SSR and a former recruit of Gusev. So <laughs> let's get back to Surikov. Um, as mentioned before, he's, you know, the, the propagandist. Um, he had 
close relations with several prominent individuals in the Russian media and politics. These individuals include Alexander Prokhanov, um, Alexander Nagorny of the newspaper Zavtra, uh, Anatoly Baranov of Pravda.info and KPRF.ru, so Communist Party website. Um, Baranov supplied us that wonderful quote about Philin's house earlier. Um, okay, carrying on. More Surikov connections. Uh, Mikhail, uh, and, and we will go into all of these. Um, Mikhail Delagian, former advisor to the PM of Russia. Uh, Mikhail Kazyanov. Um, Surikov had some some of these names are hard. Uh, Surikov also had connections to Alexei uh, Kondorov, Kondorov, um, former general of the KGB and FSB and State Duma deputy for the Communist Party, uh, and he also had connections with uh, Ilya Ponomarev, who was former Yukos Oil CEO and former Communist Party member. Yukos Oil was previously run by billionaire Mikhail Kordakovsky. Kordakovsky made a fortune during the privatization of state assets in the 1990s. He became the CEO of Yukos, which was one of the largest oil companies. However, in 2003, Kordakovsky was arrested and charged with fraud and tax evasion. Many saw his arrest as politically motivated, as he had been and as he had been openly critical of Putin and and had been funding opposition parties. Kordakovsky's trial and imprisonment and imprisonment drew international attention and criticism of Putin. In 2013, he was released from prison and immediately went into exile in Switzerland. After his release, Kordakovsky founded Open Russia, a pro-democracy and human rights organization aimed at promoting civil society in Russia. The organization has been critical of Putin and his government actions, including their treatment of political prisoners and the crackdown opposition parties. Um, Overall, Kordakovsky's story is seen as is. Overall, Kordakovsky's story is seen as an example of the complicated relationship between business and politics in Russia and the challenges of maintaining democracy and civil society in the country. Or was it? Many of the good oligarchs, Kordakovsky, Berezovsky, and a few others seem to be only one step away from Surikov at any moment. We mentioned before that Surikov was a political scientist. He worked for a think tank. This think tank was called, and you guys will love this name, the Institute for the Problems of Globalization, uh, the IPROG. 
Um, it was funded in March of 1999 with the aim of studying the negative impact of globalization on Russia and promote, proposing alternative solutions to the economic and social problems faced by the country. Um, let's remember Far West was set up in October of 1998. The IPROG is set up in March of 1999. And wouldn't you believe it? Ruslan Shamilovich Sidov, Vladimir Ilyich Filin, and Anton, Anton Surikov were all employees of the IPROG. Uh, yet none of them had any previous publication history or indeed any history at all. Um, you, you guys can see where this is going. Right. In 2002, well, maybe not yet. In 2002, Boris Karglitsky, a um, Russian left-wing political scientist, socialist and journalist, was appointed director of the IPROG. Um, Karglitsky is described as, you know, quite left, like Marxist, socialist, communist uh, kind of stuff. Um, in the, again, some of this was written by the bot. Um, in the 1980s, Karglitsky wrote articles focusing on the changing situation in the Soviet Union. In 1991, he became an editor for the Moscow newspaper uh, Rabochaya Tribuna, Workers' Tribune, which was affiliated with the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. In 1992, Karglitsky became a founder of the Russian Socialist Movement, which aimed to unite the anti-capitalist left in Russia. Karglitsky is known for his Marxist views and critical approach to neoliberalism and globalism. He has written several books on this topic, including The Twilight of Globalization, Property, State and Capitalism. That is a, that's a big title, even more big titles. From Empires to Imperialism, The State and the Rise of Bourgeoisie Democracy. Karglitsky is a frequent commentator on Russian politics, including the crisis in Ukraine, and has been critical of both the Russian government and the West. He has been a vocal opponent of President Vladimir Putin, accusing him of authoritarianism and corruption. He advocates for left-wing politics outside of Russia, has been a speaker at the World Social Forum. Um, he advocates for uh, Bolivarian revolution in, in Venezuela. He has uh, been a key figure in left-wing politics in Russia for several decades and is known for his strong political convictions and his ability to mobilize political support for his causes. But if Karl Glitsky is such a big lefty, then why is he hanging around with three former GRU officers knee-deep in organized crime and terror? There must be more to this story, and hopefully we'll find out. All right, is that it for uh, Surikov? Yeah. All right, well, definitely there was a lot on Surikov, but yeah, I mean, he is an endlessly fascinating figure. Um, he died under mysterious circumstances in 2010, 
something we'll probably get more into in a another installment here.
go into the home stretch, let's get into the last significant figure in the foundation of Far West, but certainly not the least. And this would be Ruslan Sadov, I believe. So what about this guy? What is his story? Okay, Ruslan Shamilovich Sadov was born in Kasavyurt, Dagestan. He served in GRU from 83 to 93 before being placed on reserve. He is a fluent speaker of Russian, Chechen, Avar, English, Arabic, and Turkish. He is half Chechen, half Spanish. Uh, he was born to a major party functionary in Dagestan who went through deportation to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, from a young age, he was close to the criminal environment and knew Rispek Ak Akhmatbaev, a well-known Kyrgyz businessman, politician, and criminal. That was from the book. I assume that is true. Uh, he, I, though I did look this guy up, uh, it was it was it was the case. He learned the art of double life and mimicry from his father a major figure in the Fergana Valley's, quote, cotton business, quote, um, who died during his arrest. In party circles, Seidel's father was known for his opposition to religious prejudice, particularly to Sufism, but it is believed that he was a secret member of a Sufi tariqa and brought his son into the fold. So... <laughs> Uh, some of this stuff is so fun. Um, Sidov was responsible for the Caucasus, Central Asia, the Volga region, the Urals, Siberia, and the Far East as part of Far West Eastern Directorate. That is most of the world. Um, also known, uh, okay, far as part of Far West Eastern Directorate, fill in heading the Western Directorate. So Sidov heading the Eastern Directorate, and this was known as the Istanbul Bureau of Foreign Intelligence of Ichkeria. Uh, Ichkeria is uh, Dagestan, I think. Um, forgive me. Um, also, part of this organization is a man by the name of Koz Ar Ahmed Nukayev. Uh, Nukayev is another underground figure. He, If you look him up, he will be described as a mafia or a mob boss, but he's also a deeply uh, deep political player, and he ended up as the first deputy prime minister of the Chechen Republic of Echkeria. I think he is also a Sufi sheikh, as we will get into, though it's not... I mean, hard to hard to uh, find stuff like that out. Um, like Philin, Seidel was an adept businessman who was also involved in stock speculation and construction contracts in Saudi Arabia. He imported carpets carpets from Tabriz, Iran, and Kashmir from Pakistan to Dubai. He had informal control over the Bulgarian arms company Arsenal, which was involved in counterfeit activity. 
Um, the primary business of Sidov's companies was the management of commercial real estate in Dubai, such as the uh, Jumuraya Beach Residence and Mall of the Emirates, which boasts the world's largest indoor artificial ski slope, Ski Dubai. Um, so apparently they were all involved in that. Um, I don't know whether it's still the largest indoor artificial ski slope. Um, I hope so. Um, in the night, in the early nineties, Ruslan Shamilovich Sidov, like many other Far West founders, was a personal agent of Yuri Gusev. It's believed that he sent Sidov to soon-to-be Chechen president. Uh, Doskar Dudayev after Dudayev moved from Estonia to Chechnya I think that the year of that was 1994 um, Sidov's official role was either as a operational worker or liaison officer in Dudayev's entourage um, introduced to them by GRU leadership However, unofficially, he was a covert agent of Gusev's influence. And he was tasked with directing Dudayev in accordance with, with the plans of Gusev and the country's leadership. Throughout the 90s, Sidov remained a mysterious figure in the Foreign Intelligence Service of the Chechen Republic of Echkeria. Um <laughs> Though side uh, through side of secret communications were maintained between the Chechen separatist leadership and intelligence services from countries like the U.S., Britain, uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, as well as GRU, meaning Russia. Um, though an important dynamic whenever we read these is um that there, there is a double dynamic in russia so there are two there are there are quite clearly two factions so you say group but you know who whose group officer is getting the info um this this role allowed sidov to stay out of the internal struggles between mashkadov who is a, another um chechen separatist leader mashkadov warlords salafis um and traditional sufis like chief mufti of the chechen republic of echkeria ahmed kadarov father of i think razman kadarov um whoever's the leader of uh chechnya and dagestan now uh that's his his dad um he was a big figure in this and i think he was the one that eventually ended up negotiating the deal with russia um that we'll get into that uh in the 90s chechen politics was divided between two opposing camps one camps consisted of figures like D uh dudayev mashkadov Akhteriev, Akhmat, uh, Akhmat Kadarov, and Saidov, uh, who were aligned with the ideolo ideological goals of Gusev and the Turkish general staff. Uh, they aimed to create a secular Kemalist state in Greater Chechnya, encompassing Ingushetia, the Mozdok region, the Nogai regions of Stavropol, Kasavyurt, and parts of the Dagestan and parts of Dagestan north of the Terek. 
um, and parts of Dagestan north of the Terek for access to the Caspian Sea. Um, the rest of Dagestan would become a protectorate in the Chechen mini-empire in the North Caucasus. Despite attaching great importance to the religious factor, figures like Dadaev, Mashkadov, and Kadarov saw Islamization as a return to, to a traditional form of Islam adapted to ancient national customs in Chechnya. However, also around at this time were Arabs. Ibn al-Khattab was a Saudi Mujahideen commander who had fought in Afghanistan, Nagorno-Karabakh, Tajikistan, and had extensive links to al-Qaeda and bin Laden. The Arab-aligned uh, players preferred Salafi Islam, Jihad, and Sharia throughout the Eastern Caucasus. At one point, they even dreamed of reaching Moscow. Their goal is a caliphate ruled by Arabs. The Chechens would dissolve into it. In 1995, Sidov began began working with Filin um, and other elements of organized crime to manage drug trafficking through the Novorossiysk port. Um, shortly after this, aim unconnected though maybe maybe not shortly after this Ayman al-Zahawari of al-Qaeda fame formerly number two now number one was arrested in Dagestan for illegal entry and carrying a fake passport upon learning of Zahawari's arrest Sidov traveled to to the capital of Dagestan to gather support for him Managing and he managed to obtain a court decision for a prison term um, that had already expired. So he got Zahwari off on uh, time served. In December 1995, he published an extremist book, which we've been told is actually a pamphlet, and no one's managed to find a copy of it, though they are insistent he published it. And uh, from the title, you will, uh, I'm guessing you'll believe it. Um, the title was The Muslims of the Caucasus in the 19th Century Genocide by Russia, um, which is quite a big title. Uh, the leader of the Welfare Party and future Turkish Prime Minister, uh, Nekmetin um, Erbakan, gave the book a glowing review. <laughs> In July 1996, Sidov became his advisor. By, by late 1997, Sidov had made his way to Chechnya and joined forces with Shamil Basayev and Ibn al-Khattab, as mentioned earlier. Shamil Basayev is a massive figure in all of this um we'll do a deep dive into chechnya because his story is absolutely crazy but um yeah shout out uh Seidorf worked as a trainer at a training center near serzen yurt and participated in the armed conflict in dagestan during 1999 the Sidov group of Far West is deeply integrated into Islamic and Islamist circles. Um, BCCI, 
a similar organization to Far West was founded by uh, a Pakistani Sufi, Aga Hassan Abedi, and had many members of Sufi tariqas in its branches. Um, Far West seems to consist of two structures of secret politics that correspond to the two bases it, it relies on. The first being the post-fascist wing of Atlanticism and the second being traditional Islam. The first structure, this is uh, from the book, uh, almost word for word. Uh, The first structure includes special services and elite clubs like Bilderberg, Pilgrims, the Pilgrims, Skull and Bones, who else we could go on all day listing these and i'm sure you guys know many of them uh the second structure is composed of outwardly westernized feudal clan structures of the islamic world um that's quite a mouthful so outwardly westernized feudal clan structures of the islamic world um Though they adopted the general staffs and special services from the West, the deep level of secret politics remains traditional and Islamic. The core of this structure is the inner or mystical Islam of Sufism, which has historically been organized into secret brotherhoods. We've been over some of this. To have influence on the deepest processes in the Islamic world, one must be a member of um of a tariqat Allahu akbar Allahu akbar Allahu akbar Allahu akbar
fascinating topic here and uh, probably a good one here as we go into the home stretch to wrap up on and that's really the importance of Sufism and all of this we're going to expand on this in future episodes but I just want to give you guys a quick rundown of just the profound geopolitical significance of Sufism in uh, Central Asia well, I mean really throughout the Islamic world but Central Asia especially so anyway uh, getting into that here we start with this guy called Ama Yasawa. He was born uh, in what is today Kazakhstan during uh, 1093 AD, and he lived to about 1166. So he was a Turkic-speaking poet and Sufi mystic who played an enormous role in both the spread and development of Sufi orders throughout Central Asia. He founded his own order, which was the Yasawa, I believe, uh, which was the first significant Sufi order to enter into Turkish into the Turkish-speaking world, which to this day stretches all across Central Asia from modern-day Turkey into Xinjiang, China. Xinjiang, China. So Yasawa was a true visionary, but his order eventually lost the competition for the hearts and minds of the Turkish people and many others to the Nashbande order. Uh, it was established by a gentleman named uh, Baha Adin Nasband in the 14th century. So he was born in 1318 in what is today Uzbekistan. He was a Tajik or a Turkic Persian speaker, though he was likely ethnically Turkish. Regardless, his order would become the most influential in the Sunni world, which is the predominant branch of Islam, by the 16th century. All right, so... This meant effectively that the influence of the Nashbande uh, order was profound, as well as those of its numerous offshoots, which are extensive and influential throughout the Islamic world. So <clears throat> the Nashbande order first entered Central Asia towards the end of, say, about the 14th century. So I think not too long after the founder's death. And it reached, it reached as far as Xinjiang uh, by that point in time already. Circa the 16th century, it was the principal spiritual order in the Indian subcontinent and the dominant form of Sufism among the Wigra people, Wigra people in Xijiang. 
Okay, so other variations on the Nashbande spread throughout eastern China. The Nashbande Brotherhood would continue to dominate until at least the 18th century, its influence officially waning during the 19th. Or did it? It seems more likely that it simply went underground. Many leading uh, Sufis in the modern era, such as Idris Shah, were followers, or I should say Sufis of the modern era, such as Idris Shah, were, the fa- were followers of the Nashbande order. Uh, one of the most interesting was a Uzbeki national named Ruzi Nazar. Born in 1917 in what is today Uzbekistan, Nazar was drafted into the Red Army after World War II broke out. So he was sent to Ukraine, where he later defected uh, to the Nazis. As the war went on, he helped organize the Turkestan Legion. So in the post-war years, he hooked up with the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, and he became especially engrossed to Stefan Bandera and Yaroslav Stetsko, the OUNB, the gentleman that we've been talking so much about throughout all of this, and especially with Philip's background. So for years, these guys, Stetsko and Bandera, were the dominant figures behind the ABN, and the ABN was really the nucleus for what became the World Anti-Communist League. The ABN was founded, some dispute about this, whether it was actually founded in Nazi Germany or not, but it was at least right around that time frame, around like 41, 39, somewhere thereabouts. But anyway, by the late 1940s, um, Nazar had developed a relationship with the CIA as well. So initially, he was engaged in psychological warfare, again, seaside war and all this, for a front group known as the American Committee for the Freedom for the Peoples of the USSR, which, by the grace of the gods, is typically simply referred to as AMCOM with. His greatest innovation here was his advocacy for the weaponization of Islam against the USSR. And again, he was pushing this all the way back in the late 40s. So quite a bit of a visionary there, right? He would continue pushing this agenda throughout his entire freaking life, eventually ending up in Afghanistan supporting the Mujahideen during the uh, Afghan-Soviet War. Uh, and also, allegedly, Idris Shah, another again prominent Sufi, was apparently active in this as well. You see, despite the Taliban and these other fundamentalist groups proclaiming uh, really fundamentalist Sunniism, Sufism has been an enormous part of Afghan society for hundreds of years. In fact, I mean, it's considered to be the home of the Sufi saints. First, Agha Khan. Uh, who followed a Shia form of Islam, was based out of Afghanistan for a time, and his followers still have a presence there. Uh, By the way, for those of you unaware, the Aga Khan uh, follows a particular branch of uh, Shiaism, um, the Ismaili branch, uh, which in turn includes the Nazaria, which uh, are the actual descendants of the Hashishians. Uh, from the Middle Ages, the infamous assassin, Saga Khan, as the head of the uh, Nazaria, which in the Ismaili branch, uh, would in fact make him the modern head of the Hashishans. Uh, though, again, there's a lot of endless embellishments to all of that and so forth. But, you know, again, this is just another sort of mystical branch of Islam that was so prevalent in this part of the world. Um, again, Central Asia. But the Nashbande order and its variations are the dominant ones in Afghanistan, as they are throughout much of Central Asia. 
and you know again make no mistake about it despite years of fundamentalism in or at least publicly proclaimed in Afghanistan Sufism still wields tremendous influence there on that note it's worth pointing out that prior to his time in Afghanistan Ruzi Nazar spent over a decade in Turkey including practically all of the 1960s this was one of the worst periods of the dirty wars there. Reportedly, he worked closely with the infamous CIA uh, head or chief, uh, sometimes station chief, uh, Dwayne Cowridge. Here again, Sufism, especially the Nasbande order and its variations are hugely influential. And even more so today, where both Edrigen and uh, the uh, Golan movement have links to it. And that's... Uh, based out of the uh, the cleric uh, i can't remember his first name gulen who's uh based out of pennsylvania here in the united states in the poconos region uh actually very close to a Kohlberger, they suspected uh university of Iowa murderer uh, uh his family has resided for a long time and also near sean moon's church as well but gulen is also a part of this whole uh elaborate sufi order and he's a guy who's been pushed sometimes to overthrow edrogen uh, most recently by Michael Flynn and some of those types. So again, even within the Sufi stuff, you have these kind of intrigues. As for Claridge, it was long rumored that he managed a death squad on behalf of the CIA. Uh, Claridge later ended up as the CIA station chief in Rome during St. Peter's Gate, which implicated both Bulgarian intelligence services and the Grey Wolves in the attempted assassination of Pope John Paul II. I mentioned that earlier. Our boy here, Ruzi Nazar, I mean, he had close ties to the Grey Wolves. Um, they were also fascinated by Sufism. So all of this was quite incestuous. Now, within Turkey, there was also another interesting Sufi order that played a significant role in the deep state. And I have no qualms about using deep state for Turkey because that's actually where the... Uh, the term originated from, for those of you unaware, to describe the historic structure of it. So to give you guys some perspective on that, I'm going to quote here from a book called A Dark Path to Freedom, Ruzi Nazar, From the Red Army to the CIA by Enveber Altaoli, I believe, uh, which is essentially the one kind of bio that we have of, uh, uh, of Nazar here. One of the guys that Ruzi was brought into contact with the first time he uh, came into Turkey was a Uzbek uh, Sufi Teki, who was also, I should point out that this society that I'm going to describe to you actually was part of the Naskbande uh, variations, but it was another one that was really big in Turkish society. So anyway, quoting from this book, A Dark Path to Freedom, pages 178, 179, Ruzi and Hamid Rashid also visited the Uzbek Sofi Taki in the uh, Ustatar district and met Nekmetin Efende, uh, its joking and witty sheik. The Tiki had an important place in relations between Turkey and Central Asia. It had been founded in 1752 by Yesev and the Nasbande uh, dervishes from Bukhara. Under the Ottoman Empire, pilgrims on the Hajid from Central Asia would stop in, at Istanbul before going on to Mecca and Medina. They were given hospitality at the Tiki before being taken into the presence of the Ottoman Sultan by its sheik. 
During the Turkish War of Independence, this would have been like around 1920-ish, the Tiki had been one of the most important headquarters of the secret Caracol Society, which organized the smuggling of weapons and men from Istanbul to Antalya. Many of the famous Turkish wartime figures had visited there among them. Oh, I'm not going to try to butcher any more of these names than I have to. Uh, but anyway, Sheik uh, Nekminte fastened his eyes upon Rudy with a piercing gaze that seemed to go straight through him. All right, so the really interesting thing about the Caracola Society is the role that it played on the development of uh, Turkish intelligence. So anyway, I'm going to quote here now from more of this Dark Path to Freedom, pages 221 and 222. So contact between the CIA and Turkey's intelligence uh, organization had begun in the early 1950s. Turkey's intelligence services were known as the MAH... which translates to English as the National Security Services or the Turkish National Security Organization. It had a past stretching back centuries. In the Shuljak period, on the advice of the Grand Vizar Nizamol Malik uh, to Sultan Aspersalan, I'm sorry, I know I'm butchering this, intelligence had become a regular state institution. The Ottomans throughout their history had given particular importance to intelligence services. In the final phase of the empire's history, an intelligence organization in the modern sense, the uh, the special organization, that's the English translation, was founded. The tradition was continued by the Karakol Society during the Turkish War for Independence and later by the MAH. The MAH was the de facto organization which worked directly under the prime minister but had not been established by law. At the onset of the 1950s, the CIA began cooperating with it. So basically what this amounts to is that after the Ottoman Empire uh, was destroyed in the aftermath of the First World War, the intelligence service essentially went underground as the Karakoa Society, which is you know a variation on the Sufi order. It played a significant role in the Turkish War of Independence and then uh, was basically brought back into the quote-unquote deep state as the mainline intelligence service uh, gradually. So yeah, I mean, more or less in Turkey, it seems like some of these Sufi orders have basically been uh, interchangeable with the official state intelligence services. And at times... uh, have even more or less carried out the entire functions of the state intelligence services. So, yeah, what it amounts to in the grand scheme of things is it seems like a lot of not just Turkish, but intelligence services across the globe that have targeted Islam, but especially Sufism, as a means of managing a lot of militant networks. Indeed, because of Sufism's influence among various Turkish peoples throughout Central Asia, this network has arguably become paramount in the 21st century. It poses a serious threat to both Russia's vast land-based southern border and many of China's western provinces beyond Xinjiang, but that's Xinjiang, but that's really one of the main ones there with the uh, the Uyghur people and all this other stuff. So for this reason, it's just it's not just the Western intelligence services that have targeted, but the Eastern ones as well. 
This is especially true of Russia due to Sufism's influence in Chesnia. As we see, uh, many of them, as we've seen already, many of the far west limited figures were steeped in Sufism, and it appears to have been used to make inroads with a lot of these various Islamic groups in both Chesnia and beyond. So this is one of the most fascinating and little explored dynamics of the modern day great game, namely how these uh, mystical traditions have found itself at the forefront of the new Cold War. And make no mistake about it, I mean, in a lot of ways, Sufism is the key to Central Asia, and Central Asia, by default, is in a lot of ways the key to controlling Eurasia, because uh, Russia and China are both vulnerable from the Central Asia region, from a lot of these Turkish groups who are steeped in Sufism, and also this pan-Turkish nationalism. So who controls this network is going to have a lot of influence there. And this is why it's so crucial to this whole saga. All right, Sinan, I'm going to turn it back over to you so you can wrap us up in style here. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. Because <laughs> I um I don't think there's much more to say on side off. I think that was it. Um uh, all I'd um, add, just um, I mean, piggybacking off what you've said about Sufism, there is, I mean, in general, going through this whole story, um, it gives you a real new dynamic from which you can look through the events of the last uh, twenty years and stuff. I mean, I think with with Wackle, you know, one of the things is. A lot of it, I mean, for some people happened, you know, way before we were alive or, you know, before the Internet and those kinds of things. But here, you know, all the events here, a lot of them you like witnessed on TV and you can remember how it felt like to be that and what what you what you thought when when all this was happening. And I think um in connection to Sufism is almost, well, not the opposite, but the alternative, which is, you know, to mention Salafism, which is the more, uh, I guess you would describe it as conservative uh, and rational versus um, mystic uh, Sufism. So traditionally, that's, you know, the, the Islam actually we associate with war and, uh, you know, terror and Saudi Arabia and those kinds of things but it's crazy how that has taken up so much of the kind of airspace um around Islam and really uh yeah the the influence of Sufism or just you know other other strains of Islam um, you know the the influence of what the majority of actual, uh, Muslims are actually into and believing it just doesn't come across uh, you know uh, when you're reading and watching the news and and that kind of stuff so that that was what I wanted to say on that on that is um this gave me a really different look on I guess, you know what is going on in like you know the islamic world who 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 is really friends with who and so on yeah absolutely and <clears throat> i guess to wrap up on one final note too again i just you know want to emphasize the importance of wackle and all of this and specifically 
the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, because again, this Ruzin as our guy is, you know, very rarely discussed uh, in you know modern geopolitical context. But he was one of the major advocates of essentially the weaponization of Islamic fundamentalism uh, by the U.S. security services, which has obviously had a profound effect on the Islamic world uh, throughout the Cold War and certainly in the 21st century here. And he was working very closely with uh, Yaroslav Stetsko, who was a lifelong friend, along with Stefan Bandera, uh, throughout all of this with the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. So, you know, when we look at the geopolitical dynamics that have been so important in the 21st century, first with the war on terror and then later with the situation in Ukraine and Russia, I mean, so much of this is rooted in the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and the whole concept of captive nations and, uh, you know, the captive nations week, which we've spoken out before about before, and uh, the successor organizations like uh, the Victims for Communism Memorial Foundation, and then obviously a lot of these uh, these PMCs that many of these figures have gravitated towards over the years. It's all very interconnected, but again, a lot of it has its roots in this peculiar network of uh, ethnic nationalists that was established by the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations all the way back, uh, really in the Nazi era with the designed to destroy the Russian Empire, to break it down to its medieval borders, a goal that was very acceptable to many within the Anglo-American establishment as well, which laid the uh, the basis for this uh, alliance and just how much of the importance it's had in the Cold War struggle might be more significant than, you know, we've been led to realize, you know, we've already gone into the whole thing with Gusev and uh, good old Colonel or General Yuri Gusev, whatever, and possibly uh, the fact that he was, in, or not the fact, but the possibility that he was involved with a network of Ukrainians around somebody like Dmitry Polyakov, uh, going all the way back into, uh, you know, the height of the Cold War, trying to destabilize Russia within by bringing a lot of these different individuals like Philan, like Senesov, and some of these other guys that we've discussed into the GRU and the long-time damage that they've done to the Russian Federation. So, you know, there's a lot to take in here. But once again, fundamentally, the ABN uh, is at the heart of the origins of a lot of the struggles that we are facing today. And as that is the origins of WACO, well, I mean, that brings us back to the beginning of the discussion how relevant all of this is in the modern world, uh, how much it's guided, you know, first the um, the war on Islamic fundamentalism and then later the situation in Ukraine. Obviously, the, uh, the Saudis really took on the mantle uh, for pushing Islamic fundamentalism during the Cold War, but it does have its origins with this uh, network in Central Asia around Sufis and, um, you know, Turkish nationalism ultimately so there's a lot about this that has been little understood and hopefully this has at least shed some clarity on it and we will continue to do so as this uh series progresses and with that uh, i guess we will sign off for now I certainly think we provide you guys with enough food for thought for one day anyway 
as always thank you guys so much for listening and as always good night and good luck to you all come on baby pick me up out here in my wiki up sick and tired of fucking up sick and tired of pushing luck in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat J. You were right, my people there, they feeling me. Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama, fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama, no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Screaming with me Scream, Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday.